Section 4, consisting of Chapter 5 of Sixty Years in Southern California, 1853 to 1913, by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P.J. Landau. Chapter 5, Lawyers and Courts, 1853. In the primitive fifties there were but comparatively few reputable lawyers in this neighborhood, nor was there perhaps sufficient call for their services to ensure much of a living to many more. To a greater extent even than now, attorneys were called judge, and at the time whereof I write, the most important among them were Jonathan R. Scott, Benjamin Hayes, J. Lancaster Brent, Myron Norton, General Ezra Drown, Benjamin S. Eaton, Cameron E. Tom, James H. Lander, Louis Granger, Isaac Stockton, Keith Ogier, Edward J. C. Kewen, and Joseph R. Gitchell. In addition to these, there was a lawyer named William G. Dryden, of whom I shall presently speak, and one Kimball H. Dimmick, who was largely devoted to criminal practice. Scott, who had been a prominent lawyer in Missouri, stood very high both as to physique and reputation. In addition to his great stature, he had a splendid constitution and wonderful vitality, and was identified with nearly every important case. About March 1850, he came here an overland immigrant, and was made one of the two justices of the peace who formed with the county judge on June 24th the first court of sessions. He then entered into partnership with Benjamin Hayes, continuing in joint practice with him until April 1852, after which he was a member successively of the law firms of Scott and Granger, Scott and Lander, and Scott Drown and Lander. Practicing law in those days was not without its difficulties, partly because of the lack of law books, and Scott used to tell in his own vehement style how on one occasion, when he was defending a French sea captain against charges preferred by a rich Peruvian passenger, he was unable to make much headway because there was but one volume, Kent's Commentaries, in the whole Pueblo that threw any light, so to speak, on the question, which lack of information induced Alcalde Stearns to decide against Scott's client. Although the captain lost, he nevertheless counted out to Scott in shining gold pieces the full sum of $1,000 as a fee. In 1859, a daughter of Scott married Alfred Beck Chapman, a graduate of West Point who came to Los Angeles and Fort Tejon as an officer about 1854. Chapman later studied law with Scott and for 20 years practiced with Andrew Glassell. In 1863, Chapman succeeded M.J. Newmark as city attorney, and in 1868 he was elected district attorney. If I recollect rightly, Scott died in the 60s, survived by Mrs. Scott, a sister of both Mrs. J.S. Mallard and Mrs. J.G. Nichols, and a son, J.R. Scott, admitted in 1880 to practice in the Supreme Court. Hayes was district judge when I came, and continued as such for ten or twelve years. His jurisdiction embraced Los Angeles, San Diego, San Luis Obispo, and Santa Barbara counties, and the latter section then included Ventura County. The judge had regular terms in these districts and was compelled to hold court at all of the county seats. A native of Baltimore, Hayes came to Los Angeles on February 3, 1850, followed on St. Valentine's Day, 1852, by his wife, 
whose journey from St. Louis via New Orleans, Havana, and Panama consumed 43 days on the steamers. He was at once elected the first county attorney and tried the famous case against the Irving party. About the same time, Hayes formed his partnership with Scott. In January 1855, and while district judge, Hayes sentenced the murderer Brown, and in 1858 he presided at Pancho Daniel's trial. Hayes continued to practice for many years and was known as a jurist of high standing, though on account of his love for strong drink, court on more than one occasion had to be adjourned. During his residence here, he was known as an assiduous collector of historical data. He was a brother of both Miss Louisa Hayes, the first woman public school teacher in Los Angeles, later the wife of Dr. J. S. Griffin, and Miss Helena Hayes, who married Benjamin S. Eaton. Judge Hayes died on August 4, 1877. Brent, a native of the South, was also a man of attainment, arriving here in 1850 with a fairly representative, though inadequate, library, and becoming in 1855 and 1856 a member of the State Assembly. He had such wonderful influence as one of the Democratic leaders that he could nominate at will any candidate, and being especially popular with the Mexican element, could also tell a good story or two about fees. When trouble arose in 1851 between several members of the Lugo family and the Indians, resulting finally in an attempted assassination and the narrow escape from death of Judge Hayes, who was associated with the prosecution of the case, several of the Lugos were tried for murder, and Brent, whose defense led to their acquittal, received something like $20,000 for his services. He was of a studious turn of mind, and acquired most of Hugo Reed's Indian library. When the Civil War broke out, Brent went south again and became a Confederate brigadier general. Brent Street bears his name. Norton, a Vermonter, who had first practiced law in New York, then migrated west, and had later been a prime mover for, and a member of, the first California Constitutional Convention, and who was afterwards Superior Court Judge at San Francisco, was an excellent lawyer, when sober, and a good fellow. He came to the coast in the summer of 1848, was made First Lieutenant and Chief of Staff of the California Volunteers, and drifted in 1852 from Monterey to Los Angeles. He joined Bean's Volunteers, and in 1857 delivered here a flowery Fourth of July oration. Norton was the second county judge, succeeding Agustin Olvera, and living with the latter's family at the plaza, and it was from Norton's Court of Sessions in May 1855 that the dark-skinned Juan Flores was sent to the state prison, although few persons suspected him to be guilty of such criminal tendencies as he later developed. Norton died in Los Angeles in 1887, and Norton Avenue recalls his life and work. Judge Hayes' successor, Don Pablo de la Guerra, was born in the Presidio of Santa Barbara in 1819, a member of one of the most popular families of that locality. Although a Spaniard of the Spaniards, he had been educated in an Eastern college and spoke English fluently. Four times he was elected state senator from Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo, and was besides a member of the Constitutional Convention of 1849. Late in 1863, he was a candidate for district judge when a singular opposition developed that might easily have led, in later years at least, to his defeat. 
A large part of the population of Santa Barbara was related to him by blood or marriage, and it was argued that, if elected, De La Guerra, in many cases, would be disqualified from sitting as judge. On January 1, 1864, however, Don Pablo took up the work as district judge, where Hayes surrendered it. Just as De La Guerra in 1854 had resigned in favor of Hunter before completing his term as United States Marshal, so now, toward the end of 1873, De La Guerra withdrew on account of ill health from the district judgeship, and on February 5, 1874, he died. Drown was a lawyer who came here a few months before I did, having just passed through one of those trying ordeals which might easily prove sufficient to destroy the courage and ambition of any man. He hailed from Iowa, where he had served as brigadier general of militia, and was bound up the coast from the Isthmus on the steamer Independence when it took fire off Lower California and burned to the water's edge. General Drown, being a good swimmer and a plucky fellow, set his wife adrift on a hen coop and then put off for shore with his two children on his back. Having deposited them safely on the beach, he swam back to get his wife, but a brutal fellow passenger pushed the fainting woman off when her agonized husband was within a few feet of her. She sank beneath the waves, and he saw his companion go to her doom at the moment she was about to be rescued. Though broken in spirit, Drown on landing at San Pedro came to Los Angeles with his two boys and put his best foot forward. He established himself as a lawyer and in 1858 became district attorney, succeeding Cameron E. Tom, and it was during his term that Pancho Daniel was lynched. In 1855, too, Drown instituted the first Los Angeles Lodge of Odd Fellows. Drown was an able lawyer, eloquent and humorous, and fairly popular, but his generosity affected his material prosperity, and he died at San Juan Capistrano on August 17, 1863, none too blessed with this world's goods. Dimmick, who at one time occupied an office in the old temple block on Main Street, had rather an eventful career. Born in Connecticut, he learned the printer's trade. Then he studied law and was soon admitted to practice in New York. And in 1846, he sailed with Colonel J.D. Stevenson in command of Company K, landing six months later at the picturesquely named Yerba Buena, on whose slopes the bustling town of San Francisco was soon to be founded. When peace with Mexico was established, Dimmick moved to San Jose, after which with foster he went to the convention whose mission was to frame a state constitution and was later chosen judge of the supreme court in eighteen fifty two after having revisited the east and been defrauded of practically all he possessed by those to whom he had entrusted his california affairs dimmick came to los angeles and served as justice of the peace notary public and county judge he was also elected district attorney and at another time was appointed by the court to defend the outlaw Pancho Daniel. Dimmick's practice was really largely criminal, which frequently made him a defender of horse thieves, gamblers, and desperados, and in such cases one could always anticipate his stereotyped plea. Gentlemen of the jury, the district attorney prosecuting my client is paid by the county to convict this prisoner whether he be guilty or innocent and I plead with you, gentlemen, in the name of impartial justice, to bring in a verdict of not guilty. Through the help of his old-time friend, Secretary William H. Seward, 
Dimmick, toward the end of his life, was appointed attorney for the Southern District of the United States in California, but on September 11, 1861, he suddenly died of heart disease. Eaton, another prominent representative of the bar, came from New England as early as 1850, while California government was in its infancy, and life anything but secure, and he had not been here more than a few months when the maneuvers of Antonio Garra, Agua Caliente's chief, threatened an insurrection extending from Tulare to San Diego, and made necessary the organization, under General J. H. Bean, of volunteers to allay the terror-stricken community's fears. Happily, the company's chief activity was the quieting of feminine nerves. On October 3, 1853, Eaton was elected district attorney, and in 1857, county assessor. Later, after living for a while at San Gabriel, Eaton became a founder of the Pasadena Colony, acting as its president for several years, and in 1876, he was one of the committee to arrange for the local centennial celebration. Frederick Eaton, several times city engineer and once in 1899 to 1900, mayor of Los Angeles, is the son of Benjamin Eaton and his first wife, Helena Hayes, who died a few years after she came here, and the brother of Mrs. Hancock Johnston. He reflects no little credit on his father by reason of a very early effective advocacy of the Owens River Aqueduct. Under his administration, the city began this colossal undertaking, which was brought to a happy consummation in the year 1913 through the engineering skill of William Mulholland, Eaton's friend. In 1861, Judge Eaton married Miss Alice Taylor Clark of Providence, Rhode Island, who is still living. While I'm upon this subject of lawyers and officialdom, a few words regarding early jurists and court decorum may be in order. In 1853, Judge Dryden, who had arrived in 1850, was but a police justice, not yet having succeeded Dimmick as county judge, and at no time was his knowledge of the law and things pertaining thereto other than extremely limited. His audacity, however, frequently sustained him in positions that otherwise might have been embarrassing, and this audacity was especially apparent in Dryden's strong opposition to the criminal element. He talked with the volubility of a gatling gun, expressing himself in a quick, nervous manner, and was besides very profane. One day he was trying a case when Captain Cameron E. Tom, who had first come to Los Angeles in 1854 as the representative of the national government to take testimony before Commissioner Burrill, was one of the attorneys. During the progress of the case, Tom had occasion to read a lengthy passage from some statute book. Interrupting him, the judge asked to see the weighty volume, when, having searched in vain for the citation, he said in his characteristic jerky way, I'll be blank damned, Mr. Tom, if I can find that law. All of which recalls to me a report, once printed in the Los Angeles Star, concerning this same jurist and an inquest held by him over a dead Indian. Justice Dryden and the jury sat on the body. The verdict was, death from intoxication or by the visitation of God. Dryden, who was possessed of a genial personality, was long remembered with pleasure for participation in Fourth of July celebrations and processions. He was married, I believe, in 1851, only one year after he arrived here, to Senorita Dolores Nieto, 
and she having died, he took as his second wife in September 1868 another Spanish lady, Senorita Anita Dominguez, daughter of Don Manuel Dominguez. Less than a year afterward, on September 10, 1869, Judge Dryden himself died at the age of 70 years. Tom, by the way, came from Virginia in 1849 and advanced rapidly in his profession. It was far from his expectation to remain in Los Angeles longer than was necessary, and he has frequently repeated to me the story of his immediate infatuation with this beautiful section and its cheering climate, and how he fell in love with the quaint little Pueblo at first sight. Soon after he decided to remain here, he was assigned as associate counsel to defend Pancho Daniel after the retirement of Columbus Sims. In 1856, Tom was appointed both city and district attorney and occupied the two positions at the same time, an odd situation which actually brought it about during his tenure of offices that a land dispute between the city and the county obliged Tom to defend both interests. In 1863, he was a partner with A.B. Chapman, and 20 years later, having previously served as state senator, he was elected mayor of the city. Captain Tom married two sisters, first choosing Miss Susan Henrietta Hathwell, and then sometime after her death, leading to the altar Miss Belle Cameron Hathwell, whom he had named, and for whom, when she was baptized, he had stood godfather. A man ultimately affluent, he owned, among other properties, a large ranch at Glendale. Footnote. Tom died on February 2, 1915. End of footnote. Another good story concerning Judge Dryden comes to mind, recalling a certain sheriff. As the yarn goes, the latter presented himself as a candidate for the office of sheriff, and in order to capture the vote of the native element, he also offered to marry the daughter of an influential Mexican. A bargain was concluded, and as a result he forthwith assumed the responsibilities and dangers of both shrieval and matrimonial life. Before the sheriff had possessed this double dignity very long, however, a gang of horse thieves began depredations around Los Angeles. A posse was immediately organized to pursue the desperados, and after a short chase, they located the band and brought them into Los Angeles. Imagine the sheriff's dismay when he found that the leader was none other than his own brother-in-law, whom he had never before seen. To make the story short, the case was tried, and the prisoner was found guilty, but owing to influence, to which most juries in those days were very susceptible, there was an appeal for judicial leniency. Judge Dryden, therefore, in announcing the verdict, said to the sheriff's brother-in-law, the jury finds you guilty as charged, and then proceeded to read the prisoner a long and severe lecture, to which he added, but the jury recommends clemency. Accordingly, I declare you a free man, and you may go about your business. Thereupon someone in the room asked, What is his business? To which the judge, never flinching, shouted, Horse-stealing, sir. Horse-stealing. Lander was here in 1853, having come from the East the year previous. He was a Harvard College graduate. There were not many on the coast in those days, and was known as a good office practitioner. He was for some time, in fact, the bar's choice for court commissioner. I think that, for quite a while, he was the only examiner of real estate titles. He was certainly the only one I knew. On October 15, 1852, Lander had married Senorita Margarita, 
a daughter of Don Santiago Johnson, who was said to have been one of the best-known businessmen prior to 1846. Afterward, Lander lived in a cottage on the northeast corner of Fourth and Spring Streets. This cottage he sold to I.W. Hellman in the early 70s for $4,000, and Hellman, in turn, sold it at cost to his brother. On that lot, worth today probably a million dollars, the H.W. Hellman building now stands. Lander died on June 10, 1873. Granger was still another lawyer who was here when I arrived, he having come with his family, one of the first American households to be permanently established here in 1850. By 1852, he had formed a partnership with Jonathan R. Scott, and in that year attained popularity through his Fourth of July oration. Granger was in fact a fluent and attractive speaker which accounted perhaps for his election as city attorney in 1855, after he had served the city as a member of the Common Council in 1854. If I recollect aright, he was a candidate for the district judgeship in the 70s, but was defeated. Oger, a lawyer from Charleston, South Carolina, came to California in 1849 and to Los Angeles in 1851, forming a partnership on May 31st of that year with Don Manuel Clemente Rojo, a clever, genial native of Peru. On September 29th, Oger succeeded William C. Farrell, the first district attorney. In 1853, he joined the voluntary police, and later served for some years as United States District Judge. He died at Holcomb Valley in May 1861. Oger Street, formerly Oger Lane, was named for him. Rojo, after dividing his time between the law and the Spanish editorial work on the Star, wandered off to Lower California, and there became a, quote, sub-political chief. Kewen, a native of Mississippi and a veteran of the Mexican War, came to Los Angeles in 1858 with the title of Colonel, after Fiasco followed his efforts in the southern states to raise relief for the filibuster Walker, on whose expedition A.L. Kewen, a brother, had been killed in the battle at Rivas, Nicaragua, in June 1855. Once a practitioner at law in St. Louis, Kewen was elected California's first attorney general, and even prior to the delivery of his oration before the Society of Pioneers at San Francisco in 1854, he was distinguished for his eloquence. In 1858, he was superintendent of Los Angeles City Schools. In the 60s, Kewen and Norton formed a partnership, settling on an undulating tract of some 450 acres near San Gabriel, including the ruins of the old Mission Mill, and now embracing the grounds of the Huntington Hotel. Kewen repaired the house and converted it into a cozy and even luxurious residence, calling the estate ornamented with gardens and fountains El Molino, a title perpetuated in the name of the present suburb. Kewen was also a member of the State Assembly, and later District Attorney. He died in November 1879. Gitchell, United States District Attorney in the late 50s, practiced here for many years. He was a jolly old bachelor and was popular, although he did not attain eminence. Isaac Hartman, an attorney, and his wife, who were among the particularly agreeable people here in 1853, soon left for the East. Volney E. Howard came with his family in the late 50s. 
He left San Francisco, where he had been practicing law, rather suddenly, and at a time when social conditions in the city were demoralized, and the citizens, as in the case of the people of Los Angeles, were obliged to organize a vigilance committee. William T. Coleman, one of the foremost citizens of his city, led the northern movement, and M.J. Newmark, then a resident of San Francisco, was among those who participated. Howard, who succeeded William T., afterward General Sherman, in leading the law and order contingent, opposed the idea of mob rule, but the people of San Francisco, fully alive to the necessity of wiping out the vicious elements, and knowing how hard it was to get a speedy trial and an honest jury, had little sympathy with his views. He was accordingly ordered out of town, and made his way first to Sacramento, then to the south. Here, with Kewen as their neighbor, Howard and his talented wife, a lady of decidedly blue-stocking tendencies, took up their residence near the San Gabriel Mission, and he became one of the most reliable attorneys in Los Angeles, serving once or twice as county judge and on the Supreme Court bench, as well as in the State Constitutional Convention of 1878 and 1879. Speaking of the informality of courts in the earlier days, I should record that jurymen and others would come in coatless, and especially in warm weather, without vests and collars, and that it was the fashion for each juryman to provide himself with a jackknife and a piece of wood in order that he might whittle the time away. This was a recognized privilege, and I am not exaggerating when I say that if he forgot his piece of wood, it was considered his further prerogative to whittle the chair on which he sat. In other respects, also, court solemnity was lacking. Judge and attorneys would frequently lock horns, and sometimes their disputes ended violently. On one occasion, for example, while I was in court, Columbus Sims, an attorney who came here in 1852, threw an inkstand at his opponent during an altercation. But this contempt of court did not call forth his disbarment, for he was later found acting as attorney for Pancho Daniel, one of Sheriff Barton's murderers, until sickness compelled his retirement from the case. As to panel service, I recollect that while serving as juror in those early days, we were once locked up for the night, and in order that time might not hang too heavily on our hands, we engaged in a sociable little game of poker. Sims is dead. More than inkstands were sometimes hurled in the early courts. On one occasion, for instance, after the angry disputants had arrived at a state of agitation which made the further use of canes, chairs, and similar objects tame and uninteresting, revolvers were drawn, notwithstanding the marshal's repeated attempts to restore order. Judge Dryden, in the midst of the melee, hid behind the platform upon which his judgeship's bench rested, and being well out of the range of the threatening irons, yelled at the rioters, quote, Shoot away, damn you, and to hell with all of you, end quote. After making due allowance for primitive conditions, it must be admitted that many and needless were the evils incident to court administration. There was, for instance, the law's delay, which necessitated additional fees to witnesses and jurors, and thus materially added to the expenses of the county. Juries were always a mixture of incoming pioneers and natives. The settlers understood very little Spanish, and the native Californians knew still less English, while few or none of the attorneys could speak Spanish at all. In translating testimony, if the interpreter happened to be a friend of the criminal, which he generally was, he would present the evidence in a favorable light, and much time was wasted in sifting biased translations. 
Of course, there were interpreters who doubtless endeavored to perform their duties conscientiously. George Thompson Burrill, the first sheriff, received $50 a month as court interpreter, and Manuel Clemente Rojo translated testimony as well, officials, I believe, to have been honest and conscientious. While alluding to court interpreters and the general use of Spanish during at least the first decade after I came to California, I am reminded of the case of Joaquin Carrillo, who was elected district judge in the early 50s to succeed Judge Henry A. Teft of Santa Barbara, who had been drowned near San Luis Obispo while attempting to land from a steamer in order to hold court. During the 14 years when Carrillo held office, he was constantly handicapped by his little knowledge of the English language and the consequent necessity of carrying on all court proceedings in Spanish, to say nothing of the fact that he was really not a lawyer. Yet I am told that Carrillo possessed common sense to such a degree that his decisions were seldom set aside by the higher courts. Sheriff Burrill had a brother, S. Thompson Burrill, who was a lawyer and a justice of the peace. He held court in the Padilla building on Main Street, opposite the present site of the Bullard block and adjoining my brother's store, and as a result of this proximity we became friendly. He was one of the best-dressed men in town, although when I first met him he could not have been less than sixty years of age. He presented me with my first dog, which I lost on account of stray poison, evil dispossessed or thoughtless persons with no respect for the owner whether a neighbor or not and without the slightest consideration for pedigree were in the habit of throwing poison on the streets to kill off canines of which there was certainly a superabundance ignacio sepulveda the jurist and a son of jose andres sepulveda was living here when i arrived though but a boy born in los angeles in eighteen forty two he was educated in the East and in 1863 admitted to the bar. He served in the state legislature of the following winter, was county judge from 1870 to 1873, and district judge in 1874. Five years later he was elected superior judge, but resigned its position in 1884 to become Wells Fargo and Company's representative in the city of Mexico at which capital for two years he was also American charged affair. There, to my great pleasure, I met him, bearing his honors modestly, in January 1885, during my tour of the Southern Republic. Sepulveda Avenue is named for the family. Footnote. After an absence of 30 years, Judge Sepulveda returned to Los Angeles in 1914 and was heartily welcomed back by his many friends and admirers. End of footnote. Horace Bell was a nephew of Captain Alexander Bell of Bell's Row, and as an early comer to Los Angeles, he joined the Volunteer Mounted Police. Although for years an attorney and journalist, in which capacity he edited The Porcupine, he is best known for his reminiscences of a ranger, a volume written in a rather breezy and entertaining style, but certainly containing exaggerations. This reference to the Rangers reminds me that I was not long in Los Angeles when I heard of the adventures of Joaquin Murrieta, who had been killed but a few months before I came. According to the stories current, Murrieta, a nephew of José María Valdez, was a decent enough sort of fellow who had been subjected to more or less injustice from certain American settlers, and who was finally bound to a tree and horsewhipped after seeing his brother hung on a trumped-up charge. 
In revenge, Murieta had organized a company of bandits, and for two or three years had terrorized a good part of the entire state. Finally, in August 1853, while the outlaw and several of his companions were off their guard near the Tejon Paso, they were encountered by Captain Harry Love, and his volunteer-mounted police organized to get him, dead or alive. The latter killed Murieta and another desperado known as Three-Fingered Jack. Immediately, the outlaws were dispatched. Their heads and the deformed hand of Three-Fingered Jack were removed from the bodies and sent by John Sylvester and Harry Bloodsworth to Dr. William Francis Edgar, then a surgeon at Fort Miller. But a flood interfering, Sylvester swam the river with his barley sack and its gruesome contents. Edgar put the trophies into whiskey and arsenic when they were transmitted to the civil authorities as vouchers for a reward. Bloodsworth died lately. Daredevils of a less malicious type were also resident among us. On the evening of December 31, 1853, for example, I was in our store at 8 o'clock when Felipe Rime, often called Rame or even Reem, gloriously intoxicated and out for a good time, appeared on the scene, flourishing the ubiquitous weapon. His celebration of the new year had apparently commenced, and he was already six sheets in the wind. Like many another man, Felipe, a very worthy German, was good-natured when sober, but a terror when drunk, and as soon as he spied my solitary figure, he pointed his gun at me, saying at the same time in a vigorous native tongue, "'Treat or I shoot!' I treated. After this pleasing transaction, amid the smoky obscurity of Ramon Alexander's saloon, Felipe fired his gun into the air and disappeared. Startling as a demand like that might appear today, no thought of arrest then resulted from such an incident. The first New Year's Eve that I spent in Los Angeles was ushered in with the indiscriminate discharging of pistols and guns. This method of celebrating was, I may say, a novelty to me, and no less a surprise, for of course I was unaware of the fact that when the city was organized three years before, a proposition to prohibit the carrying of firearms of any sort, or the shooting off of the same, except in defense of self, home, or property, had been stricken from the first constitution by the Committee on Police, who reported that such an ordinance could not at that time be enforced. Promiscuous firing continued for years to be indulged in by early Angelinos, though frequently condemned in the daily press, and such was its effect upon me that I soon found myself peppering away at a convenient adobe wall on Commercial Street, seeking to perfect my aim. End of section 4